I am very happy to introduce to you Harvard-trained pain specialist, Dr. Anish Singla. He has over a decade of experience as a pain specialist, and he's here today to share his expertise and his understanding of pain and its purpose. Welcome, Dr. Singla. Thanks so much, Pamela. I'm really uh, excited to be on your show and excited to share some of my insights with your audience. Well, you have uh, recently published a book entitled Why It Hurts. Tell me why it's important to understand the purpose of pain. Well, that's a great question, Pamela. I think that pain is one of those uh, symptoms, one of those feelings that uh, pretty much all of us experience at some point in our lives. And I think it's very important to understand why we have pain and how pain is actually not really um, always a bad thing. Uh, We experience pain in lots of situations when um, our bodies are potentially in danger. And for example, when you cut yourself or touch a hot object, pain is what alerts us to back away so that we can actually protect ourselves. As a pain specialist, I've uh, encountered um, lots of patients who suffer with pain. And um, a lot of times, uh, especially in today's society, uh, pain is viewed as a negative thing. And um, you, see, you hear references to the war on pain, for example, and lots of other uh, situations where pain is looked at as a negative experience. And what I'm trying to do is just shed some light on pain so that people can understand that, yes, it's unpleasant, but there's actually some real protection that pain provides us. Well, excuse me, what was interesting to me um, early on in Why It Hurts, you make the point that over, and this number was astounding to me, over 116 million Americans suffer from chronic pain, and the treatment costs over $365 million. Say more about those numbers. They just seem amazing. Sure, absolutely. So actually, you're right. 116 million uh, Americans do suffer with some sort of chronic pain. And actually, uh, the number actually is even higher. It's actually $635 billion is what, you know, managing that pain costs us in this country alone every year. And so, and that's not direct medical costs. That's actually all the costs factored in. For example, medical costs plus the cost of lost productivity for missing you know, days of work, for example, if you've got low back pain. So putting all that together, $635 billion every year for chronic pain. It's just extraordinary. Now, you know, one of the things about chronic pain um, that, that I've seen over time is that for women who experience or report that they experience chronic pain, certainly for a while, the medical and mental health community were looking at that as essentially being all in her head. Well, I think that, you know, there are certainly, you know, two different types of pain, and I talk about that in the book. I mean, we've got physical pain, which is what I think we we all understand what physical pain is. When you stub your toe or, again, you touch a hot uh, stove by mistake, you feel that physical sensation, and that is, and it hurts, and it causes you to back away from whatever it was that might have hurt you. But there's also 
a, another type of pain, and that's psychological pain. And, and it's often been referred to as an ache in the mind as opposed to physical pain, which is more of an ache in the body. And, you know, uh, a, a, a common uh, situation where you might have that psychological pain would be, let's say, a situation like depression. And depression is also a very uh, common uh, disease that, you know, many of us in the United States as, as well as the rest of the world experience. And that in and of itself can also be interpreted as distress or pain. Yeah, absolutely. I would certainly agree with you. It, Tell me about your uh, comment that how we believe in pain is so important to the nature and the intensity of our suffering. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, uh, Pamela. I think that, um, you know, we, we all... We, we sort of, when we experience pain, you know, of course there's a sensation that is, is, is the pain itself, but then our thoughts around the pain are also very, very important to how we experience the pain. Again, going back to sort of the analogy of, of that physical injury, you know, again, stubbing your toe or touching a hot stove, you have that physical pain, but then the signal as it travels up into our brain is where we actually interpret that. And our beliefs around that are very important to how we ultimately experience that pain. And for example, if, if you have a certain cultural belief or a certain uh, feeling about how that pain was, was how that pain occurred, you may feel much differently about it. For example, I talk a little bit about soldiers on a battlefield uh, and some of the work of Henry Beecher uh, in World War II. And, you know, soldiers, interestingly, that were injured on a battlefield with horrific injuries, uh, three quarters of them, you know, stated they had little to no pain. And it's, a, it's probably because they were in an environment where they were looking at themselves as fighting a war for freedom. Um, whereas that same soldier in, in a hospital setting after they've been injured, you know, getting a simple injection of penicillin, they would scream out in terror and in pain because um, they're not on that battlefield anymore. So again, our experiences of, uh, you know, how we experience the pain and how our thoughts are around the pain ultimately do influence our ultimate interpretation of the pain. It's really fascinating how... Uh powerful, if you will, our thoughts are on our physical well-being or the lack thereof. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, I talk a little bit about how uh, when we experience physical pain and, for example, if we experience a lot of psychological distress about that pain, for example, if, if you are uh, used to um, being athletic and, let's say, uh, playing golf or you know, playing sports with your children and you have some pain, for example, low back pain that might prohibit you from doing those things, the, uh, the psychological feeling of, of well-being that you no longer are getting from those activities can weigh on you as a form of mild depression and that can actually enhance the feeling of the pain. So there's no question that there's that connection um, and, and the converse is also true. Um, you know, recently, 
uh, Debbie Reynolds uh, passed away uh, after Carrie Fisher's death, um, very shortly after. And for example, there's many folks who believe that she may have experienced the broken heart syndrome, mm -hmm. which you know, in medical circles, we refer to actually as a real syndrome. It's called Takasubos cardiomyopathy, where intense psychological distress can actually induce a heart attack. That is certainly a, a call to awareness, if you will, for folks who perhaps aren't clear about how strong the tie is between what you're thinking and believing and feeling emotionally and what you're feeling physically. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that um, there's more and more evidence that there is, um, you know, quite a connection between the physical and the psychological and how the two can play into each other. You uh, talk about different types of pain. Can you tell us what those uh, three different types are? Sure. I think that from uh, a classification standpoint for physical pain, um, we usually think of pain in three separate categories. Uh, nociceptive pain, which is simply pain that occurs due to a cut or a burn that's acute. Uh, again, touching that hot stove, for example, would be an example of that nociceptive pain. A second type of pain is inflammatory pain, and that could be looked at as sort of the body's response, the inflammation, and part of that healing that occurs after an injury. So for example, you touch the hot stove, you have that acute burn, but then the finger still feels kind of kind of warm and inflamed for another week or two until things heal. And that could be looked at as an example of inflammatory pain. I see. And then, and then the third type of pain that we look at is called pathological pain. And that's sort of like pain that doesn't really point you to a direction of an actual injury, but just more dysfunction of the nervous system itself. For example, if you've had a nerve that's injured, now you've got that nerve sending this signal of pain, but there's really not an acute injury that you've experienced to trigger that alarm. case, how would you treat that? Well, you know, it's always individual. I mean, I think that first we, when we see a patient who comes in with uh, a type of chronic pain that's just not getting better on its own, we have to investigate. And that investigation can involve lots of different things. For example, obviously talking about the history of how that injury or, or, or that pain may have started. Uh, we talk a little bit about um, you know, what sorts, well, first of all, we, we, you know, we not only get the history, but we also do a, an examination of, of what the symptoms are presenting like. We may order uh, diagnostic scans like an MRI or x-rays. Uh, and so we kind of go through that, uh, that workup of that pain to really understand, you know, what's the injury if there is one, and if there's not, and now we've found that there is some sort of chronic nerve injury or damage, then 
we sort of treat it as such. And, and to your question, uh, how do we treat, for example, a, a patient with a chronic nerve injury? Well, you know, again, we, we sort of put treatment into you know, four major categories, and, and, and medications would be one category, and within that there's obviously many choices. There's physical therapy, which you know, includes um, you know, rehabilitation attempts to maintain function uh, and strength. Uh, and then uh, the third category would be minimally invasive procedures such as spinal injections or other types of nerve block uh, procedures to try to tone down the sensitivity of the nervous system uh, and also to serve as diagnostic uh, measures. And then obviously the fourth option could be potentially um, more invasive options such as surgery. What are your thoughts about um, PRP therapy, which we're hearing more and more about these days? Absolutely. I think that uh, PRP is a very exciting area in medicine and, and in pain management because PRP is essentially taking your own uh, cells and, and nutrients from your blood uh, and um, extracting the real you know, rich, the growth factors out of the platelet-rich plasma is what PRP stands for. And lots of athletes are using this to recover quicker from injuries, for example, um, uh, from, from ankle sprains or um, uh, ligamentous injuries, soft tissue types of injuries. Um, and, and I think that it's um, very promising because it, you're, it's taking your own cells, not some, you know, a drug from a, uh, another, uh, you know, that was, it was created in the laboratory, but your own cells, and injecting them back in just to accelerate that, that uh, your body's own healing process. And again, lots of athletes have been using it. Um, you know, I myself in the book talk about how I've had a PRP and how it worked really, really well for me when I had a neck injury. And I think that it's a, um, you know, it's a very exciting uh, field. I mean, the, the field has actually got a name. It's called regenerative medicine, where essentially we're taking um, cells and nutrients and trying to regenerate parts of the body that may have undergone an injury. You know, when you say regenerative medicine, it, it almost sounds like one of those things that you, you heard of in those science fiction movies from years ago. It just wasn't possible. It was just a made-up idea. But today, it's very real and very helpful. Absolutely. I mean, it is very much, I mean, almost like a Star Trek kind of a phenomenon, you know, where you have uh, you know, these, these amazing cells that you can inject into your body that can sort of regenerate a damaged organ. But it's very real. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, for example, Ray Kurzweil, who's a big futurist and innovator, uh, he believes that probably over the next, you know, 10 to 20 years that we'll be able to actually regenerate, you know, parts of our body like entire organs, for example, or even inject little, you know, small nanobots, little, little computers in that could, you know, do the work that we might have to do surgery to, to fix nowadays. So the medical profession is certainly continue, continually evolving and continually finding new and better and less uh, potentially harmful in terms of the side effects ways of treating pain. Absolutely, Pamela. Let me ask you, uh, when you see folks who are dealing with, for example, chronic pain, are you noticing that that is happening uh, along particular lifestyle lines or gender lines, or does it, it, tell me about that. You know, chronic pain can really affect 
just about anybody. I see people from all walks of life. I see, you know, younger folks that might have had a an injury that led to chronic pain um, if it were was was perhaps not addressed early enough. I see um, older folks who have uh, a, a chronic um, medical issue just due to degeneration of the spine, for example, um, but they've made the choice not to, you know, pursue surgery to fix the problem. So they sort of, have, but they found that balance to manage the pain uh, and decrease the pain, but also maintain function, which is sort of what our what our goal is with chronic pain. It, it's really, you know, not, you know, our, our goal is not zero pain when we're treating chronic pain. I mean, when we can achieve zero pain, we're very happy. Happy, and, and certainly we would strive for that if it's a if it's an achievable goal. But in the majority of our patients, we shoot for a goal that's perhaps um, a little more achievable, like say a 50% reduction in a patient's pain. But again, zero pain is not the goal, but avoiding zero function is the goal. So we want to keep patients functional if the pain is not you know is not something we can get rid of. I think it's so important to underscore what you just have said, that zero pain is, is not the goal. Because I think a lot of people who experience pain, whether it's psychological pain or physical pain, when they walk into a clinician's office, they're looking for zero pain. They're looking for a magic cure and zero pain. <laughs> That's so true, Pamela. I mean, I think that um, you know, we live in a society where, you know, we're used to taking a pill to, to treat whatever ails us. Um, for example, if you have a, a, a you know, a, an infection, you take some antibiotics and, and it's gone in a week. You, if you have, for example, a problem uh, like acid reflux um, and you take uh, some acid reducers, the, the, the problem goes away. But with pain, it just doesn't work that way. And I think, I, I suspect, again, that this is sort of our, you know, body's innate wisdom protecting us because we do need pain to survive. It is a protective alarm for our bodies. And I think that we actually have a real-life example uh, in the case of uh, a syndrome called congenital insensitivity to pain, which unfortunately uh, children that are born with this, which is essentially an inability to feel pain, um, they, these children, um, they die at a very young age because they do not have the protective alarm that pain provides us with. You made the comment that uh, chronic pain could be impacted negatively if it's not addressed early enough. Now, in my world, which is mental health, what we will say to folks is if you've had these symptoms for two weeks or more, it's really time for you to consider coming in or at least getting an evaluation. Is there a time frame in terms of uh, chronic pain? Well, I think that uh, that's a great question, Pamela. I, I don't know that there's actually a hard and fast rule in terms of a time frame. Uh, you know, a lot of times when uh, a, a person experiences an injury, uh, let's say a simple ankle sprain or, again, a cut on the skin, those things just sort of heal themselves on their own. And so I would say that after you've had an injury, if you don't notice that that injury is getting better or improving on its own, and again, that could be days, it could be weeks, or again, if it's severe pain and, and it, it probably should get looked at much sooner, um, 
that those are the, the, the situations that we really need to intervene early. So again, I would say that it's very much an individual thing, but, but certainly if there's pain that's severe, it should probably get looked at right away. And if it's sort of a mild or moderate pain and it's not getting better within, say, a week or 10 days, then that's probably a good time to at least start the process of having a physician evaluate that. So it, it sounds like, in essence, uh, two weeks for physical, for a medical issue, for pain, as, as well as for a mental health issue, is kind of a reasonable guideline. I believe so. Okay. I, I do. And I think that it's, um, again, very, I mean, in situations where um, the pain is so severe, it's probably going to drive you to go see someone right away, like, say, the emergency room or an urgent care uh, center. But if the pain is, is one of those things that you're managing, let's say, with a little bit of over-the-counter medicine, maybe some ice for an ankle sprain, and, and hopefully it's not a bad injury, then it's very likely that it's going to get better. But I think two weeks is a very reasonable number, uh, at which point you're, you're going to want to have that pain looked at, evaluated by a medical professional, so that you don't develop that progression to the chronic pain. I see. Now, uh, Anish, let's go back to the conversation we began before the break. Uh, you were talking about people who do not experience pain. And again, as I said then, there are people who are listening who are saying, wait, what, there are people who don't go through what I go through? Show me that direction to go. <laughs> That's, you know, and I can see that that would certainly be a normal response, especially to, for someone who you know, is experiencing a lot of chronic pain, uh, it would seem like uh, that would be a, a great, you know, uh, option that's available. Um, but, you know, it, it's actually not. And if you look at this syndrome, it's called congenital insens insensitivity to pain. Um, it's abbreviated CIP. It, the estimates are it affects about 1 in 25,000 people. Mm. And uh, the, the, what ends up happening with these children, unfortunately, is, is they injure themselves. And they injure themselves repeatedly because they just don't know that if this sharp object, for example, is bad for them. And, and in fact, I, I remember reading uh, an article about a, a, a CIP child who had, had cut herself didn't experience any pain, but then thought it was fun to sort of draw, you know, in her blood. And, and again, what it does is it, it, it points to the fact that pain very much is a, uh, a protective function uh, and, and if you, in, in our bodies. And if you don't have pain, you are very likely to injure yourself in ways that can then turn into very serious problems. So, so I think that if you look at that extreme example, yeah, you know, unless there's some other way to replace that alarm, which I don't believe there is, we do need that protective quality that pain provides us. The question is, when we have it, what do we do with it?
one of the things that strikes me as you were talking about the child who, after cutting herself and not experiencing any pain, sort of began to play with cutting herself. And I could easily see someone thinking a child, a, a clinician, a child who's cutting themselves, are we looking at a case of sexual abuse? And if we're not careful and don't work to rule out any physical causes, we've got a problem. Absolutely. And, and there have been cases where these CIP children are brought to the hospital uh, from an injury and they, they've suspected the parents of child abuse in some way. And, um, and again, and, and, you know, until they discover that the child may have, have self-inflicted those wounds because the child can't feel pain, uh, the parents, you know, sometimes are suspected of that. I, I know a pediatric dentist uh, here uh, in the local area who um, also has removed teeth from some of these children with CIP because they're continuously biting and causing erosions inside of their mouth um, from that because they, they, just, they can't feel the pain from the actual injury. So again, I think that there, there's no question there's that protective function and, and how, do we, how do we manage it is really the question. So functional MRI is a tool that's primarily used in a research setting at the present time where we can use uh, an image, uh, uh, a, the amount of, of blood flow and changes in blood flow to different regions of the brain. And we use that as a measure to tell us how activated a certain region of our brain is becoming. And we've, in a lab setting, we've looked at both physical and psychological pain and tried to induce it through some sort of a controlled stimulus, like, say, a small electric shock. And then we've looked at functional MRIs and tried to map out what areas of the brain are becoming more active or stimulated. So it's a very important early way of, of trying to measure uh, with a scan what parts of our brain are becoming more active when we experience pain. And you say that the evidence shows that physical pain and emotional pain activate the same regions in the brain. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, I think it's, very, um, it's a very interesting and exciting area um, where there is a lot of research. And what is fascinating to me is that there is quite a bit of overlap between when we experience physical pain and when we experience psychological pain because overlapping brain regions for both of those experiences are stimulated under functional MRI. So one could actually argue uh, in, in you know, the fact that those same regions, those overlapping regions are becoming stimulated with both those types of pain, that psychological pain is real pain. Dr. Anish Singla is a uh, pain management uh, professional. He has also written Why It Hurts, A Physician's Insights on the Purpose of Pain. Dr. Singla, thank you so much for this book and, and for your time today. Thank you, Pamela. And Dr. Singla, is there a website for the book? Absolutely. Um, it's called uh, www.whyithurtsbook.com, and you'll get in more information about the book, and it's also available for um, ordering on Amazon.com. 
All right. So the, the website is whyithurtsbook.com. Yes, that's correct. Terrific. Thank you again very much. Thank you, Pamela. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a licensed medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications, and it is available to you on demand 24 7 by going to mindtalk.org, or you can simply go to iTunes and download the Mind Talk app. If you would like to be in touch with me directly, you can send an email to Pamela at mindtalk.org. That is a confidential email address. Only I will see it. So again, that's P-A-M-E-L-A at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, well, it's unacceptable. (laughs) 